Session number three has to do more with the nuts and bolts. What I want to propose is not a script, but just some guiding points for conversation. You and I don't want to sound like Amway salesmen. Nothing wrong with Amway salesmen, but when I'm sharing the gospel or sharing truth, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to get them to buy a product. And so I don't want to have a prepackaged approach to people. I do want to keep some thoughts or principles in mind, though. So I want to propose some talking points or principles you can use when certain questions are posed to you by somebody holding a gay or lesbian or pro-gay lesbian point of viewpoint. And you notice I'm saying someone holding that viewpoint because nowadays we are not just having these discussions with lesbian and gay people, we are having them with many people who are heterosexual but who hold a gay affirming viewpoint and are challenging our beliefs as Bible-believing Christians. So I want to take five common questions you are likely to hear. I would like to propose some answers to them, which I hope you can adopt in your own conversations, which you're going to have, aren't you? And they are powerful. It's interesting, I think, that much of what we remember about people, whether good or bad, is not necessarily what they did to us or did with us, but what they said to us. Many of the either pleasant or unpleasant memories we have about people center on conversations we had, what someone said, what we said, what we wish we didn't say, or what we wish we did say. And frequently, if you're like me, you have those Walter Mitty moments where you replay that scenario and you basically reenact what you would have said or should have said and you figured, there, I sure told him, oh, but that was 30 years ago. Well, I did it right this time anyway, you know. And so what I'm hoping we can do is beef up our ability to say what needs to be said at the time. So we will be asked questions from people holding a viewpoint different from our own. Let's start when the, then with question number one. We have already addressed it to a point. It goes something like this. Since people are born gay, doesn't that mean God made them gay? Now, I think it is helpful to point out the difference between assumption and content. A number of statements are made, a number of questions are asked that show both assumption and content. For example, if I were to ask, so when did you realize you're such a jerk? Well, I'm operating with quite an assumption, aren't I? You know, there is the content, when did you realize it, but there's the assumption that it's true. The old cliche we had when I was growing up was somebody saying, when did you stop beating your wife, Mr. Jones? Well, wait a minute, who said I beat my wife? That's the assumption. This question, like many such questions, is based on an assumption. Well, it's assumed. I mean, we all know people are born gay. Therefore, since people are born gay, doesn't that mean God made them gay? Big difference, isn't there? So first of all, and frequently, you want to challenge the assumption of a question, then respond to the question itself. So when I am asked that, I like to first respond with a secular response. I don't believe to this day 
anyone has conclusively proven that homosexuality is inborn. I am open to the possibility, although I don't believe such a conclusion is ever going to be drawn, at least not with scientific backing, but to this day there is no conclusive evidence that homosexuality is inborn. I mentioned earlier the power of repetition. Let me flesh that out a bit. The gay activist I was speaking of uh, was a gay activist who was prominent in the mid to late 1970s. And at that time, he held a lot of influence both with the gay community and the culture. He was actually a guest at President Carter's White House meeting on gay and lesbian issues at that time. And at that time, one of the main points we wanted to promote to the culture was 10% of the population is gay. Now, these days, you hardly ever hear that argument anymore, but at the time, the idea was to reduce the shock value of homosexuality by inflating a statistic and saying, well, don't you know 10% of the population is gay? The implication being, if 10% of the population is gay, how weird can being gay really be? So 10% of the population is gay is something we wanted to convince the culture of. Now, this man was very prominent. He even built certain movements based on that false statistic, 10% of the population is gay. Time prohibits getting into the origins of the statistic. It is drawn from Kinsey's research and report, which indicated that 10% of the male population he studied had at some time had some form of a homosexual experience. People conveniently omitted the fact that many of the people he studied were prisoners and people who had been arrested on sex offense charges. But nonetheless, with that inflated figure, people were trying to normalize homosexuality by saying across the board, 10% of the population is gay. Now, in a recent interview, this activist admitted, I always knew that wasn't true. But repeated telling made it so. Repeated telling made it so, which is why to this day I say there is no conclusive evidence. As a matter of fact, the American Psychiatric Association has said in its own statement on sexual orientation that there is no one theory on the origin of sexual orientation which has been proven conclusively and applicable to all people. And even they say what I think many of us know, whether instinctively or by our own research, there is probably not one single factor in the development of homosexual feelings. There, there is a constellation of factors. The temperament a person was born with, certain family events in life, perceptions and responses, and who knows what else. Probably a constellation of things combine to create that condition that we now call homosexuality. And of course, even if such a theory was proven, it should be pointed out, well, you know, there are a number of unhealthy tendencies which may be inborn. It is true that issues like alcoholism and chemical dependency and even violence frequently run in families. Some very good research has indicated that there may well be a genetic predisposition towards addiction or alcoholism or towards depression. Um, or even towards violent behavior. There are some studies that attorneys have used to say, hey, Your Honor, my client who committed a violent crime isn't really responsible because he inherited the violent gene from his father or his grandfather based on the assumption that such a gene had really been found. I found this both amusing and appalling at the same time when about 25 years ago, 
Time Magazine ran a cover story on research done which said adultery, it may be in our genes. And the author of the study honestly said, men seem to be genetically programmed towards polygamy or promiscuity. Therefore, it's unreasonable for women to expect men to be faithful because they are genetically programmed towards adultery. And of course, besides the fact that such a claim is ludicrous, the real question is, now where does all this end? No matter, even if I was born with a tendency, and I don't believe adultery is an inborn tendency by any means, I believe sin and selfishness, those are inborn, and that's what I believe leads to adultery, but not adultery itself. But a critical question is, are we not free will agents? Do I or do I not have the capacity to say no to particular desires? Well, if I do not have that capacity, then I'm not fit for civilized company. Because on a daily basis, whether we recognize it or not, you and I say no to hundreds of different tendencies. The temptation to say what you shouldn't say. The temptation to not say what you should say. The temptation to lie and call in sick for work when you're not sick. The temptation to cut somebody off on the freeway. The temptation to punch somebody out. And on and on and on and on on a daily basis, we say no to a myriad of impulses, desires, and temptations. Thereby, we remain free will agents. And because of that, the origin of a feeling does not determine whether or not the feeling should be yielded to. Let me repeat that. The origin of a feeling does not determine whether or not the feeling should be yielded to. We don't judge what is right or wrong, normal or abnormal, by what created a tendency, but rather by what would it lead to if the tendency is yielded to. And in that sense, then, whether or not someone is born attracted to the same sex, while a very important point is really not the primary point, the primary point remains no matter what caused me to feel a particular way, on what basis do I judge whether or not I should yield to that feeling? The origin of the feeling cannot be that basis. Therefore, I would argue that inborn does not necessarily mean God-ordained. Inborn does not necessarily mean God-ordained. Much of what I feel, God has nothing to do with. And when I'm dialoguing with people, I point out, I think we can all agree, if you believe in God, that he has nothing to do with racism. He has nothing to do with domestic violence. He has nothing to do with prejudice. He has nothing to do with lust. He has nothing to do with a number of behaviors we all agree are wrong. Yet people may have a deep desire to engage in those behaviors or to promote those beliefs, that doesn't mean those desires were given by God. Which leads to a second common question. One has to do with origins, the other with outcome. Origins, outcome. Outcome has to do with the question of change. And the question goes something like this. Since lesbians and gays can't change, isn't it cruel to insist they be celibate? You can see two big assumptions right there, can't you? The first, the assumption that lesbian and gays can't change. The second, the assumption that we are telling people who are lesbian or gay, your only option is to be celibate. 
because in fact you may find that you have the option of heterosexual marriage depending on to what extent you meet, fall in love with, and or become attracted to someone of the opposite sex. Those are two assumptions inherent in that question. But let's talk about this one for a few minutes because this is perhaps one of the most controversial beliefs you can hold about homosexuality today. The belief that homosexuality is changeable. Let's look at the context of the controversy over that belief. Over the decades, there has been the movement, of course, to normalize homosexuality. Part of that movement has, of necessity, targeted those who believe that homosexuality is changeable, because if homosexuality is changeable, homosexuality, therefore, is not inevitable. The movement wishes to promote the idea that it is inevitable. If your son or daughter is gay, that son or daughter must be celebrated as gay or lesbian. You have no other choice. It is inevitable. If you, in fact, offer the option of change, then you are challenging the inevitability factor. Because when someone comes out of the closet, they are celebrated as someone who yielded to the inevitable. Now, we are coming along and saying there is another option that is not tolerated if people only want one option to be viewed as inevitable. And so they have tried to do all that they could to what? Diminish the credibility, denigrate, diminish the reliability and the truthfulness of people like me, ministries who do what I do, different psychologists, psychiatrists, ministry leaders, therapists, counselors, pastors, or individuals who have promoted the idea that homosexuality is changeable. They are now saying we are all guilty of a crime they call conversion therapy. Now, if you have not heard that term, I promise you, you will. Conversion therapy is currently the rallying cry of the modern gay rights movement. The modern gay rights movement wishes to ban what they call conversion therapy. Like many terms, conversion therapy is a term which consistently morphs and is hard to nail down. It is somewhat like the term racist. I think you can remember a time we all believed we knew what the term racist meant. It meant you believe in the superiority or the inferiority of one race over another. And I think we can all agree that is not just a bad belief, that is an evil belief the belief that one race is superior to another, one race is inferior to another. Now, to be honest, I don't even know what racism means in the modern vernacular. It has morphed so many times. I am told routinely that as a Caucasian, I am guilty of racism. I'm still not sure why. Because the term morphs to conveniently fit whoever the target is who a person wants to diminish. If you say someone is racist, you have thereby diminished their credibility. So it is with conversion therapy. At one time, people generally understood conversion therapy is a clinical approach to homosexuality by which a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist seeks to change the sexual feelings of an individual using psychoanalytic technique. That's what conversion therapy meant. But now the meaning has broadened because in an attempt to silence anyone who preaches that homosexuality falls short of God's will and that you do not have to yield to homosexuality, you can't limit that term just to psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. That's relatively a small group. You have to apply it to anybody who says to homosexual people, there is a better way. 
Well, who does that include? Well, <laughs> it includes virtually any Christian leader who is leading responsibly. It includes Christian counselors, Christian ministry leaders, it includes pastors, it includes bishops, it includes anybody who holds and promotes the traditional viewpoint on homosexuality. They are now deemed guilty of conversion therapy. And the crime they are committing is the crime of falsely telling lesbian and gay people they can change. Now, let me hit the pause button because I'm going on a bit of a rant here. Is everything they are accusing us of wrong? No. Some of their criticisms are accurate. Let me compare this to the healing ministry, okay? Over the years, there have been many healing ministries. Anything wrong with that? No. I cannot say I take the New Testament in particular seriously if I denigrate the fact that God heals individuals. Christ healed individuals. In the book of Acts, we saw many healings occurred as the apostles prayed for people to be healed. And we are told in the epistles that, for example, in James, if someone is sick, let the elders of the church pray for that person and they will be healed. Healing happens. In fact, gifts of healing and gifts of miracle working are described as, as gifts of the Spirit commissioned to some people who have them. That is all true. I unapologetically believe that God can and often does physically heal individuals frequently in the miraculous, instantaneous way. Absolutely true. Now, I think we'd have to admit there have been some pretty weird things done in the name of healing ministry. And we're not going to get into naming names or doing caricatures of anybody, but for heaven's sake... I've looked at some people in the way they practice the gift of healing and what they promote and what they put on stage, and I think, for heaven's sake, P.T. Barnum could not have said it better. There's a sucker born every minute. This is nonsense. And in some cases, really, that's what it is. Am I going to say that because some people have practiced the ministry of healing irresponsibly that there is no such thing as the ministry of healing? Of course not. The problem is the way it was done, not the fact it was done. Two very different things. The fact that people prayed for the sick for healing is not wrong. The way some people have done that is very wrong. The fact that over the last five decades in particular, many ministries have risen up, ministering to people impacted by homosexuality, offering healing. The fact that that has been done is good. And I am grateful beyond belief that I've been able to be a part of that kind of ministry. The way it has been done sometimes, yeah, I'd say some pretty weird stuff has been done. Sometimes people have employed techniques that are outrageously wrong and unbiblical. Sometimes people have just been irresponsible. Just as I believe it is irresponsible to say, oh, you have an illness? Okay, I'll pray for you and I promise you'll be completely healed. I don't know that. Can God heal? Yes. Am I going to presume to say in every case when I pray for somebody to be healed, they're going to be healed? No. I pray in faith believing they will be. I know that can happen, but I must trust God with those results. And the last thing I'm going to do is tell somebody, oh, you weren't healed. It's your fault. That's cruel and terribly unbiblical. So the fact that somebody has ministered improperly does not mean that the ministry itself is wrong, but rather the way the ministry has been done. At times, people have overpromised outcomes and said, hey, if you come to me for counseling, 
we will follow my particular counseling technique, and I guarantee you, you will lose your homosexual desires, you will gain heterosexual desires, you'll be married and live happily ever after. I think that's very irresponsible. And I think it presumes to know what God has in mind for an individual. So I am not willing to say that lesbians and gays cannot change. I know they can. I am willing to say that at times people who have promoted the idea of changing homosexuality have done so irresponsibly. I am not willing to say that therefore such ministry shouldn't even happen. Nor am I willing to say lesbians and gays can't change when I read specifically Paul telling the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, such were, past tense, some of you. I know not only by personal testimony, but much more important than that by the word of God itself. Absolutely, people can be freed from homosexuality, and more important, people can be freed from sin. Here's the question. When we say somebody can be freed from sin, what do we mean? Well, I think that does bear some explaining, doesn't it? Because when I say you can be freed from sin, I am telling the truth. Am I fully explaining what that means? Might you not be led to believe if you can be free from sin, you'll be free from all temptation to sin? You'll never have a struggle with that sin again? I don't know. I'm not willing to limit the power of God, and I'm not willing to make demands on the power of God. I'm not going to limit the power of God by saying, it's impossible for you to completely lose the temptation towards that sin. But I'm not going to put demands on the power of God and say, I guarantee you, you'll lose the temptation. Because the reality is, and I think we have to accept the fact that there's some mystery to this. Some people are allowed to continue to deal with temptations in one area. Other people are relieved of temptations in one area. Nobody is completely in this life relieved of all temptations. So when we're dealing with sin, what sort of changes are we offering? And this is an important point because somebody will ask you, okay, I've repented, what can I expect? You don't want to get boxed into promising something that you cannot predict, but there are some promises you can make. We are absolutely looking first from a change from death to life. I guarantee you, if you come to Christ, you will live. If you will put your faith in his finished work on the cross, you will be born again. I don't care who you are or what you've done. That change, I guarantee you. And really, I'm not trying to be simplistic or cliche. There is no more important change a person can experience than the change from death to life. Nothing more important can happen to an individual than that that individual will be born again. That we can promise with complete integrity and the authority of the word of God. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Absolutely, you can change from death to life. Everything on top of that, if you really want to get nitty-gritty about it, is frosting on the cake. It's good, but it's not the essential. The essential is, yes, you will change from death to life. Also, a change you can guarantee, and let's not negate this, a change of heart towards God and towards sin. That is to say, you absolutely can and will experience a softening of your heart towards God and towards sin. You will develop, as you seek God and grow in grace, you absolutely will develop a softer heart towards God by which you are saying, Abba, Father, I want to live obediently, and a harder heart towards sin, whereby you are saying, basically, not today, Satan. Like, no, I will not do this. And this is where it gets interesting. It's like we flip-flop, isn't it? We usually begin with a hardened heart towards God and a softened heart towards sin. You, I don't want to hear from. You, I want to indulge. And then we're flip-flopped. 
And the spirit is now controlling where the flesh used to control. And what's happening? The heart towards God, which was hardened, is softened. You I want to hear from. And you know. I'm more and more hardened towards you as I say no to you. I'm more and more softened to you as I say yes to you. We can guarantee that. A change in response to sin. That is to say, when you are tempted, absolutely, you can and will experience more strength to say no to that temptation. And a change in heart and mind, which, by the way, is a bigger change I've experienced than the change in my sexuality. The change in my sexuality, definitive, concrete, wonderful. But not nearly as wonderful as the change in my heart and mind. When I repented in 1984, God made something clear to me. Homosexuality was not the great sin in my life. The great sin in my life occurred in 1978 when I said, I will. I will give myself permission to walk into that adult bookstore and look at pornography. I will give myself permission to enter into that illicit adulterous affair by which a woman became pregnant and aborted our child. And then I will start going to gay bars and engaging in gay sex. The great sin was the I will, which has Luciferian roots, doesn't it? I will ascend. I will become like the Most High. No wonder then we read that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. We come into alignment with Satan himself when we join him in that statement, I will. It was not that I had engaged in unnatural sex. It was that I had made a god out of Joe Dallas. Repenting of the sex, that was relatively simple compared to my lifelong ongoing freedom from making a god out of myself. Now, those are changes we can guarantee. When it comes to, okay, that's all well and good, somebody will say that is true, I accept that. I can change from death to life. My heart towards God will soften. My heart towards sin will harden. I will experience a change in the way I think and feel. That's very good. But what about the sexual desire for the same sex? Okay, there we have to allow for individual outcomes. Generally, you can say this. The person who repents of homosexual sin... If they will abstain from the sin, the longer they abstain from it, they will notice a lessening in the frequency and the intensity of the homosexual desire. I think that is something we can say with integrity. They will perhaps still experience the presence of sin, as John said, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we kid ourselves. But they will experience freedom from the power of sin, as Paul said, Romans 6, 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Now, virtually everyone I have known personally, whether I knew them socially as a colleague, friend, or worked with them as a client, they have reported these changes. The longer they abstain from the behavior, the less frequently they feel pulled towards it and the less intense the feelings are. In some cases, they still retain the attractions. They do. And I don't believe that means they're doing anything wrong. They are allowed to still struggle with those feelings. Other people find that essentially they're relieved of those feelings. That is what I found, although I am very aware of the fact that under certain circumstances I could be tempted again. And for obvious reason, I would avoid those circumstances. So I'm not going to be stupid enough to dismantle my life. I have no desire for homosexual sex. But I believe if I put myself in certain situations, those desires could be reawakened because although I repented of the sin, that did not delete my memory banks, unfortunately. Could they be reawakened? I'm really not sure that they could. I may be completely wrong. I can't imagine it. But you know what? I ain't going to test that theory out. 
I like my life as it is, thank you. And then there are other people who find that, hey, there's nothing there. It's gone, it's over, I feel nothing for it. I wonder if you ever saw a movie, it's one of my favorites, called A Beautiful Mind. It's a Ron Howard film about the statistician John Nash. Guy was brilliant and he was schizophrenic. He was a Princeton professor who suffered severe schizophrenic hallucinations, audio and visual. He saw people literally interacting with him. And the movie's cleverly made, sorry, I'm doing a spoiler, but the movie so cleverly sets it up that you don't even realize these are hallucinations till the movie is halfway done. But the point is he interacts with them until he has a real crisis and nearly drowns his own child in the tub because he was interacting with the hallucinations. He gets treatment. He goes through a serious recovery, a very hard season of struggle. And then years later, decades later, we see him as an older man talking to a colleague in the Princeton Hall. And in that dining hall, the colleague says to him, do you still suffer from the hallucinations? And Nash looks across the room, and way on the other side of the dining hall, there are the hallucinations, silent, standing, looking at him. And he says, yeah, sometimes they're still there, but they never interfere with me, and I never interact with them. That's the difference between the presence of sin and the power of sin. It can still be there, but in Christ we are released of the power of those sinful tendencies. Now here's what gets interesting. Why is it that some people have this outcome and some people have this outcome? Darned if I know. I have no idea. I see nothing that would cause one outcome versus another other than sovereignty. And it harkens back to a conversation that Jesus had with Peter. Remember after the resurrection, when they're sitting around dining, and Jesus has that wonderful interaction with Peter when he says, let's get back to that promise you made to me that you love me too much to deny me. Do you love me? And they have an interaction based on that question. And at the end of that interaction, Jesus says, you know, Peter, all your life, you've gone where you wanted to go. Henceforward, you are going to be led, sometimes where you don't want to go. And at that point, Peter looks over on John and goes, okay, well, what about him? And Jesus said, you know, if it's my will for him to live until I come again, and it's my will for you to die a martyr's death, that's really none of your business. Follow me. Let's keep this in mind. The calling is universal. The outcome is individual. When Christ says to you, take up your cross and follow me, where's that going to lead you? I don't know the outcome. I know you got the same call I got. So we both responded, right? Where it's taking you may be very different than where it's going to take me. What you experience may be very different than what I experience. The outcome is unique to the individual. The calling is universal. And apart from that, we have to recognize God's sovereignty when Jesus says, if I will for his outcome to be this and your outcome to be that, well, it's really a lot like what God said to Job. Who are you to tell me? I didn't come to you for advice. Follow me. This is what we have to emphasize to people because we want to be responsible when we present the call to discipleship. The call to discipleship is not the call to gratification. 
I believe, having said all of that, that the life lived within Christ is abundant in every way imaginable. It is exactly what he said, an abundant life. It is. And he, he was absolutely telling the truth when he said, you won't thirst again if you follow me. Let me satisfy you. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is life. Like, I mean, I, at its hardest, I could never say that my life is a martyr's life because it's not. I mean, the life in Christ is abundant. But that said, what we do not get to promise people is that they will get what they want if they follow Christ. And we have to gently remind them, once you have said yes to this covenant, which you must say yes to if you want to live, and it's a wonderful covenant to be in, however, you abdicate ownership. When you said yes to him, you also said yes to the terms and conditions of the contract, and you know one of them, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your spirit, which are God's. You handed over the deed. Rightfully so, by the way. He will do a much better job managing that property than you ever will. Absolutely. So this is how, to my thinking, in a rather long-winded explanation, I would say we explain the concept of change to people in a way which is hopeful and biblical and responsible. Now, a third question you're likely to hear, well, the authors of the Bible, they didn't understand homosexuality, did they? Look at all we know today. Okay, those guys, Moses and Paul in particular, oh, yeah, they said it's an abomination and it's unnatural and it keeps people out of the kingdom, but what did they know? They didn't have Freud. They didn't have modern politicians. They didn't have the sociology professor I had who explained all of this to me so well. So they didn't understand. A few points on that. The authors of the Bible absolutely understood the human condition. That I think we can say with integrity. Moses was, after all, raised and educated in Egyptian courts. The guy was probably no slouch in education. And Paul, for heaven's sake, a Pharisee schooled under Gamaliel? Yeah, the guy knew a thing or two about the human condition. In fact, unquestionably, he would have understood, for example, uh, Plato's writing, which was popular at that time, which very openly described a detailed homosexual romantic love, not just sex, but romantic love between men. Now, to say Paul was ignorant of Plato would be sort of like saying Billy Graham was ignorant of Freud. It's a possibility, but it's not very likely. So, no, I think Paul and Moses absolutely understood cravings for what is forbidden. So, in response, yeah, Paul's education included a breadth of cultural knowledge. Absolutely. So, I find it very unlikely that he didn't know most of what we know about homosexuality, really. In fact... I think Paul and Moses, if they'd have heard the modern pro-gay arguments we hear today, they would have scratched their heads and say, yeah, well, tell me something I didn't already know. The human condition craves what God did not intend it to have. And <laughs> what's your point? Which brings the second point to that prohibitions do not require explanations. Now, the reason I throw this in, I'm not really big on saying, because I said so, that's why. Eh, I think that can be a cop-out, although there are times when God will absolutely reserve the right to say that, as he did to Job. When you can tell me how this whole existence you have was created, then we can talk about your idea of what I should or should not do. Until then, basically, I love you, but shut up, you know? Prohibitions do not require explanations. Let me put that in another way, okay? I am 67. 
Uh, I have two awesome sons. They have not yet married. Most of my friends have grandkids by now. I have a grandfather's heart that's all dressed up with nowhere to go. So your babies are not safe around me. I'm like, oh, baby, I want to be grandpa. That's, you know, my time in life. I don't have a grandchild to pour that out on, so it all goes on my English bulldog. <laughs> Handsome, wonderful, and probably a little, a lot spoiled. That's my guy, okay? He knows I love him. I inherited him from my pastor. My wife and I adore Peter. We call him Petey at times. When nobody is looking, I call him Bobo. Anyway, um, he doesn't always get what I'm doing. I do things to him that he does not understand. He has an ear infection. I have to take a, a syringe, not a needle, but a syringe and squirt medication into his ears, and I have to wipe the folds of his eyes. He hates that. And every time he sees me coming with those wipes and that syringe, he looks at me like I'm this abusive father. Why are you doing this to me, you know? There's no way he can understand what I'm doing. There's no way he can understand it's in his own interest. I have to do to him what he does not like for his own sake. Likewise, I have to withhold from him what he would like for his own sake. He's an English bulldog with that muscular, he's really wonderful, looks like a wrestler bodybuilder on short little legs, you know. Um, but if he puts weight on, it's going to be awfully hard on his joints. I have to keep his weight down. I don't feed him as much as he wants to eat. And his system is delicate. He can handle dry food. That's just about it. I can't give him table scraps. That doesn't keep me from doing it, but I never should. Because by and large, what he wants would actually do him harm. Can I explain that to him? No, he does not understand his own digestive system. But I do. Therefore, I withhold from him what he wishes I would not withhold. And I do to him things that he wishes I would not do. Why? Because I love him and I have his interest at heart. Can I explain that to him? No. But does he know me? And this is important. Yes. So why can I do to him the things I do and withhold what I withhold? Because I've proven to him how much I love him. I walk him every day. I brush him down. I talk to him. Full disclosure, I even sing him a lullaby at night. <laughs> Granddad. The guy knows I love him. And based on that knowledge, he can take what I do to him and withhold from him, even though he doesn't understand what I do to him and withhold from him. My prohibitions in his life do not require an explanation. When God told me homosexuality was prohibited, he didn't owe me an explanation. I knew enough about God's love for me the way he had treated me, how he had forgiven me, and was restoring me back to himself. I didn't fully get why is it so wrong for me to be with a man? Why is it so wrong for me to yield to these feelings? Who am I hurting? What am I doing that is so serious? Now, with time, I've come to understand what God created me for was something different than what I wanted. And it was in my interest to let him conform me and to bring me into a completely different way of life. I get that now, but then I was like my bulldog and God was coming at me with those eye wipes and I was saying, I don't like what you're doing. But his prohibitions didn't require an explanation. And prohibitions are inspired by God without contingency. That means inspiration doesn't require full explanation. 
So when Paul told Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for, among other things, doctrine and instruction and righteousness and even rebuke, that means just that. When a prohibition is inspired by God, it is in the best interest of the individual. And for that reason, yes, Paul and Moses understood probably all that we understand about homosexuality, but even if they wrote under inspiration without full understanding, that does not make the inspiration any less inspired or any less authoritative. Which leads to question number four, another assumptive question. Why do so many Christians hate LGBTQ people? Why do so many of you hate lesbian and gay and transgender people? The assumption being we hate them. To which I would respond, there is hatred, there is prejudice, and there is conviction. Those are three separate things. There is hatred, there is prejudice, and there is conviction. To hate is to experience, according to Webster, quote, intense hostility, aversion usually deriving from fear, anger, or sense of injury, extreme dislike or disgust. Let me pause here for a minute. When I was very young, I used to listen regularly to a great apologist named Josh McDowell. I bet you've heard of him, Josh McDowell. He wrote a classic landmark book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It came out around, I think, 1973, 1974. So well put together, still very relevant. And his son, Sean McDowell, has taken up his father's mantle. Josh is still a major contributor to the apologetics field. His son, jo uh, jo uh, Sean, is uh, also uh, working in the same field very well. And the book is still on the market. In fact, it was just updated. Point is, I loved his title, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, where we are today, I believe we are experiencing a verdict that demands some evidence. We've been found guilty. The verdict has been passed with no trial and no evidence. It's just assumed we hate. Was there ever a hearing in which we were able to explain ourselves? Was there ever a courtroom scene in which we could say we are accused of hating, let us offer our apologia? No, but the verdict got passed anyway, and it gets passed and sent through the soundbite cycle and the news cycle and the spin cycle, and pretty soon you've got a whole population of people believing Christians, because they believe certain things are wrong, thereby hate the people who they disagree with. Now, does that mean that they are completely wrong, they being whoever says we hate lesbians and gays? Are they completely wrong in saying there is such a thing as prejudice against homosexuals among Christians? No, they are not wrong in saying that. That prejudice has existed, and to some extent it still does exist. I know when I was first born again, there were Christians who I heard who said things about homosexuals that made me very reluctant to ever admit that I had been guilty of that sin. I also know when my ministry began by the grace of God years later in 1987, there were Christian pastors who said to me, I would never have someone like you in my church. If you were ever involved in that sin, I would never want you around my people. I remember being asked to speak to a board in which an individual uh, at that church had been 
asked if he would lead worship in the church. He had submitted his name as a candidate for worship leader. He was highly qualified, was living a godly life, but many years before that had been involved in homosexuality. And many people on that board and in the church were saying, no homosexuals at this church, even though he had repented of that sin. Nope, the fact that he was ever involved in it, no, we don't want him. And I was asked to speak to that board, and I looked right into the faces of spirit-filled men who were saying to me, anybody who was guilty in that sin, we don't want in this church. You might remember not too many years ago, there was a terrible shooting in a Florida gay nightclub called the Probe Nightclub in Florida, where a number of gay men, and there were women there as well, were murdered by a man who walked in with a gun and killed a number of people. Side point, I know two men who were there and who survived repented of homosexuality and are now two huge advocates for the biblical position on homosexuality. And their testimonies are amazing how God kept them through that ordeal. But the fact is, I saw it on YouTube. At least two pastors on record, on videotape, got up the morning after that shooting and said, well, I'm glad. Good to know some of those sodomites got killed. The world's a better place. I mean, this still happens. So I'm going to be the last person to say we have completely gotten over the idea of hatred towards homosexuals. There are even some Christians who I believe do literally hate lesbians and gays. Thankfully, that's a tiny minority. I'd have to say very, 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 very few Christians are guilty of that, but it does exist. Then there's prejudice. That's an adverse opinion uh, or leaning formed without just grounds or without sufficient knowledge. It's irrational hostility directed against an individual group or race. It's not the same quite as hatred, but it is prejudice. But then there's conviction. That's a strong persuasion or belief, the state of being convinced. Here's why I break this down. If I'm asked that question, I like to say, I agree with you. There have always been some Christians who hate homosexuals, just like there have always been Christians guilty of all kinds of sins. We are not a perfect population, and some of us are guilty of some very gross sins. All of us are guilty of some sins, period. I get that, and I agree with you, but I think you're not being fair or accurate when you say that Christians in general hate homosexuals. Only a fraction of them do indeed hate homosexuals. Some don't hate them, but some have an irrational prejudice. But for most of us, it's conviction. We hold a belief. We hold a particular worldview which informs our belief. We believe this is what God intended when he created humanity. Here's the definition of marriage spelled out in the book of Genesis and reiterated by Jesus in the Gospels. Anything, anything falling short of that falls short of God's will. We no more disapprove of homosexuality than we disapprove of adultery or fornication or, or prostitution or lust in any form. All of those fall short of what our creator intended. That's not hatred. That's not prejudice. That's conviction. Again, another side point. When someone says, I am homophobic, a phobia is an irrational dread or fear of a person or thing. I like to point out, you and I are having a conversation you are in my face, I am in your face. Did you ever meet an arachnophobe who could talk this close to a spider? <laughs> then I guess I'm not homophobic. No, I have no phobia towards you, no animosity towards you. I disagree with you. 
And isn't it possible for us to still have a relationship despite the fact we disagree? Which leads finally to question five before we break for lunch. Isn't LGBT the new civil rights issue? Isn't this the new civil rights issue? The implication being this. If we are talking about the new civil rights issue, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Gosh, I grew up seeing over the news, not where I lived, but I knew it existed, areas of the country where there were black and white drinking fountains, where there were black and white restaurants, where people could not sit at a counter if they were of a racial minority. And I saw the marches and the protests in the South where police beat and abused people who were peacefully marching for civil rights. I get it. I would not want to be on the wrong side of that time of history. But it's a terrible stretch to presume that if someone objects to a behavior in 2022, they are automatically in the same class as those who sought to oppress a group of people back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s. Why? Because my first response is racists believe that minorities are fundamentally inferior. There is a big difference then between racial prejudice and the belief that homosexuality is a sin. Why? Nobody at that time, in the 50s or 60s, in a highly segregated area, would have said to people who were African American, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with you as a person. I just object to African American behavior. Nobody made that distinction. They would say, you can't sit here because you are foundationally inferior. Now show me how many Christians really in 2022 are saying, no, you can't come to our church. No, I won't sit with you in a restaurant. No, I won't have a dialogue with you. No, I won't drink out of the same drinking fountain you drank out of. Of course not. We are saying there is an aspect of your life, not your whole life, an aspect of your life that I believe is outside of God's will. That is all. I do not believe you are inferior to me. I do not believe you are superior to me. I do not believe you are foundationally defective. I believe there is as much sin in my life as there is in yours. The difference between us is I call the sin in my life what it is. In this case, you are choosing not to call it a sin. And there is the difference between us. I define a part of your life as outside God's will and thereby sin. You define that part of your life as within God's will and thereby legitimate. That is our difference. The difference is over homosexuality itself, not over the superiority of one of us over another. In fact, I validate that you have countless good qualities. And by the way, I do. I don't know what your experience has been. I'll tell you mine. If likableness got you into heaven, I think the gays and lesbians would go before a lot of us would. Because some of the most likable, and I really mean this, some of the most honorable people I have known were people I knew in the lesbian and gay community. Honorable doesn't mean right in every way, but I sure knew a lot of lesbian women and gay men who were people of their word, who were respectful, who were hardworking, who were caring, who were good citizens. Honorable people and likable good grief. Brilliant, funny, creative, great conversationalist. We had a lesbian couple as next door neighbors for years, my wife and I. And not long after we moved into the neighborhood and found that they were our neighbors, they understood what I did for a living. Very interesting. And every so often our mail would get mixed up, which was delightful. 
when they would bring over to us a piece from Dr. Dobson's organization, like it was a bit of toxic waste here, you know. But you could not have better neighbors. You could not find more likable women. And they were a part of our life, and I'm glad they were a part of our life. I'm glad we were a part of theirs. Terrific people. Now, that's got nothing to do with prejudice, and, and I absolutely do not believe there's anything inferior about them. But Christians believe homosexual behavior is fundamentally wrong. Not that homosexual people are fundamentally inferior. Which brings up an important question or point I want to close on. Past injustices do not legitimize all current trends. Now, this goes for any number of sinful behaviors. Racism, literal true homophobia, violence against minorities. Those are part of past injustices that absolutely have existed. When I was growing up, it was perfectly kosher, even a right of manhood, to beat up a homosexual person. That was applauded. So I fully understand there were past injustices. Does the fact that there were past injustices legitimize the current trend to say that anybody who holds a viewpoint is guilty of those past injustices? Absolutely not. Now, just for example, not to introduce too much politics into all this, but personally, I adamantly reject the critical race theory. I have heard it, I have studied it, I've written about it, and no, I don't believe it. But I am very aware that in the past and in the present, terrible injustices have been and to some extent still are committed against African Americans and against other minorities. Absolutely. That should not be called bad. That should be called evil. Bad's when you do 68 miles per hour in the 65 mile per hour zone. That's bad. Evil is when you really believe one race is superior to another and you act on that belief you are practicing evil. But the fact that you don't subscribe to modern theories about race doesn't put you in the category of a racist. Likewise, the fact that you do not subscribe to a gay affirming position does not mean that you hate homosexual people. Those are two entirely different things. The church has been wrong in the past about a number of things, but even that really is not an accurate statement, is it? Because anytime you say the church, who are you talking about? The whole body of Christ? You can't say anything about the whole body of Christ other, other than the fact that if they are really part of the body of Christ, they've been born again. Other than that, anything you say will be a generalization which will fall short. Some Christians practiced slavery. Some Christians have practiced homophobia. Some Christians have practiced at different times in history evil. And some Christians were valiantly a part of the abolitionist movement. And some Christians have absolutely come to the aid of homosexual people who were being mistreated and everything in between. But here's the point. If the church practiced the wrong practice in response to a sin, does that mean that the church should no longer hold the position that a sin is a sin? Now, just for example, colonial times, gossip was preached as a sin. Missing church fellowship was preached as a sin. If you gossiped and you were found to have gossiped, there's a good chance you would have been taken out in front of the whole community, tied to a stool, the stool was attached to a pole, and you would have been dunked underwater and held underwater for a full minute while the whole community laughed at you. If you missed church fellowship and you didn't have a good excuse, you know, like you died, you might have found yourself put in the stocks and publicly humiliated for that. See, I think those practices were wrong. Were the positions wrong? No. You should not gossip. 
You should not miss church fellowship. Those are sins. The practices were wrong. The positions were not. The practices some Christians have employed towards homosexual people have been wrong. The position we hold is not. And there's the difference. Of course, you know as well as I do, we are not guaranteed the outcome we desire when we sow the word of God. But let me reiterate, when we are having dialogue with lesbian and gay people, let's sow in hope. Because absolutely, the word of God still does not return void. And it is still alive and sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And absolutely, the gospel message brings fruit, and the full counsel of God brings fruit. It does. I mean, if this stuff doesn't work today the way it worked in, in the times of the early church, then our faith is in vain. Of course it still works. Our job then is to sow the truth and to sow the word. And what we will answer for when we stand before God, again, is going to be our faithfulness. So God said it beautifully to Jeremiah and through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, 28, let's close on this admonition. He that has my word, let him speak it faithfully. We'll answer for the words, not for their reception. Faithfulness is the goal. God grant we fulfill it. Okay, before we...